Genesis 1 opens with, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a convicting message of Christ and the purpose of his death, burial, and resurrection. Pricked in their hearts, the people gathered respond with a simple question, What must we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. When we begin with Genesis and start with the story of God's oneness, it will lead us more fully into the story of salvation, tethering the two in a way that is richer and more reflective of the whole word of God. The true essence of salvation is a restoration of intimacy, the restoration of an intimate stroll through a beautiful garden flourishing in unity. Life here and now does not flow towards intimacy, but from intimacy with Him. Salvation is about bridging the distance created by sin that keeps us from walking with Him as we did in the Garden of Eden. If we want His life to course through our being, we must enter the story of His oneness and discover the salvation which recovers intimacy. The problem with reading through the text of Scripture in a year is it causes us to hurry. It's a great act of discipline. You should do it at least once in your life. And if you do it every year as an act of discipline, as a commitment to come to the Word of God every day, it has value. But as a form of study, I'm not so sure you can take something as rich and full as the Word of God and the breadth and the scope of it and capture that by reading through it so quickly. Sometimes we need to learn to slow down, to pause, to ask questions, to reflect, to have a Sabbath with the Word. In the beginning, God. When? In the beginning, right now, in this moment, as I begin my day, as I pause in the middle of my day, as I lay down before I end the day, in the beginning, whatever the time is, in the beginning, God, when, right now, wherever you are, it's a beginning. Created the heavens and the earth. Where? Where is God? He's here in this space, in your home, in your car, in your house, in your city, in your church among your friends, among your family, in your relationships. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. What? What chaos can be identified in my circumstances, in my character, in my community, family, friends, work, and church? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. How is God present in all of this? How is God hovering? How is God calling to me? How is God waiting? And God said, let there be light. What is God revealing in this beginning? 
What is God saying right now? Where is God? Where is the light? What would I need to do to move toward that light, to walk in it with him? Pause and work your way through scripture. Read through it slowly. Ask yourself questions. In a previous lesson, I talked about interpreting for intimacy. I emphasized the centrality of intimacy and the interpretive act. We need to understand what our presuppositions are. We need to know as best we can what conditions and axioms form the foundation for our interpretive endeavors. Two of mine are from an apostolic Pentecostal tradition. I engage the Word of God with these traditions in the background. The Bible is inspired by God. We take the Bible seriously. We start first with the words of Scripture. See, the Bible is central to living. Words form our realities. They shape our behaviors. So we want His Word to be what we center on. And not just what is said, but how it is said. And that is why we value stories. We don't strip away the story to find the truth. We tell the story to flesh out the truth. We're aimed for intimacy. Words have purpose. Creation is aiming towards something. So when we come to His Word, we do so with an aim. Intimacy. And intimacy is the driving force for our life because it's the driving force of His Word. The biblical account of creation demonstrates an interdependence inherent in the material structures of our world. While I do not believe the creation account in Genesis is primarily an account of materiality, it does demonstrate the unifying nature of the oneness of God. There is a oneness built into creation. It's built into the language and understanding. The framework for all living is this interdependence, this oneness. Interdependence demands, it calls for intimacy, and intimacy is fueled by interdependence, which is the essence of one God. I remember in the bathroom taking care of my morning business. And it was a good thing because my three or four, maybe five-year-old son at the time comes bursting into the bathroom, uh, which has no lock in our house. So uh, there's no way to keep the children out when you're trying to uh, gather your thoughts for the day. And he comes bursting in and he walks up and he hands me this envelope. He's like, Mel's here. And so I take the envelope and I'm sitting there and I rip it open and I open it up and lo and behold, I have purchased $9,000 worth of furniture from someplace in New Jersey. Apparently, my identity had been stolen about a year ago and they waited an entire year. They opened a credit card that I had no idea about in my name, waited an entire year to purchase supposedly purchased $9,000 worth of furniture from the great state of New Jersey. Uh, needless to say, having your identity stolen is a horrible experience. It took six months of hassling and fighting with the insurance, or not insurance, but the, the credit card company who said, well, it's been open a year, so we deny your claim 
that this is a false transaction. And so then I had to go to the police station. I had to file police reports. I had to contact credit agencies and put flags on everything. It was a miserable experience that took way too many hours of phone calls and tracking things down. I even went to the website that was listed on the credit account to find that uh, it's a fake website. I called the number to the company and wouldn't you know it, this furniture company had a voice mailbox that was full. Uh, I'm not sure how long they're going to stay in business if they don't have uh, an ability to take calls or receive messages. It was clearly this was a scam and we were betrayed and our identity was stolen. And the result of betrayal from a wrong identity produced this interdependent web of lies and deceits. The problem with betrayal is it doesn't just impact you in one area. It doesn't just impact you in one way. Betrayal fractures your identity completely. And not just your identity, but it reaches out and it seeps into the lives of the people connected to you as well. You don't know where you are. Depending on the type of betrayal, it can be incredibly devastating and some people almost never recover. You don't know where you are. You don't know where you've been. You don't know where you're going. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you know. You don't know how to sort it all out. You, you thought you were this person who knew how to read others to see things clearly, but now what? The, the betrayal has just fractured your ability to trust even yourself. And then you will begin to see people who were your friends begin to kind of distance themselves from you because they thought you were this person who wouldn't be betrayed. And now you're this person and then they don't know who they are because they were the friend of a person who wasn't betrayed. Then once you become betrayed, they don't know what to say to help you. So they distance themselves, which then just causes more betrayal and more fragmentation. And you can begin to see how Betrayal, it, it not only touches every aspect of your life, it reaches into the lives of those you love and who are close to you. And you may be completely innocent, but it's very unsettling because when you are betrayed, others feel it on the fringes and you may find they don't know how to help, how to react. In the garden, Adam and Eve are tempted. They're approached by a serpent who weaves a very crafty little lie. He almost doesn't actually lie if you read the story. He just offers an alternative history and an invitation to participate in a new way of seeing things. And he lays down some desires that perhaps you should, you know, go ahead and taste, see what happens and the deceit that he kind of very subtly weaves leaves Adam and Eve incredibly vulnerable. Their eyes are open. They see that they're naked. They see their vulnerability. They realize their weakness. And it pushes them into hiding. Look at how little deceits infect our relationships. Even at the smallest level, a small deceit 
can begin to be a seed for something much greater. How many marital fights are about not a solid thing about what they're actually about? How many times have we just let something go and it builds and it builds and resentment begins to fester because we didn't speak up when we should have. We allowed that thing to keep building and building and building. We ignored the red flags and as a result, this huge interdependent web of lies and bitterness and resentment builds and builds and builds and it takes down your world. In the garden, Adam and Eve's sin, giving in to the desire, playing into the deceit, ended up literally killing their son. All because they began living with a false identity of who they were. When we talk about redemption or salvation or restoration, these are relational terms. Even when we're talking about a space or a material object, the notion of restoring a piece of furniture is at root relational. It's about restoring something to its proper function in relationship to the rest of its world. Redemption is ultimately about identity. Look how many name changes take place in the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah, Jacob to Israel. Often a change of name was a marker of a point of transformation and development of a new identity. In the book of Numbers, a census was taken indicating a transformation of slave identity to nation of free men and women. The law gave very specific guidelines on what to expect in relation to God and how to live with one another. Look at pagan practices where one never knew if they were sacrificing enough to appease the gods, even to the point of sacrificing their children. Under the law of God, under the law, God called for sacrifices which provided for the people's future. Under paganism, people were often sacrificed for the future. Look at the prophets. The prophets come on the scene time and again to remind the nation of Israel they were a people of God, not a people of a place. They were in the promised land because they were with God, not because they were in a particular land. On the Sermon on the Mount, we're given the Beatitudes. We're called the salt of the earth. The Sermon on the Mount speaks of anger and lust and marriage and honesty and vengeance and compassion, generosity. It tells us to fast and pray like you know God and he knows you. Don't be judgmental. Seek God like he cares about you. Think of others. Live intentionally. The kingdom of heaven is primarily about who you are, not where you're going. It's less about getting to the place of light as much as it is about being the light of the place you're in. It is all about your identity. What do you do when it all falls apart? When your vulnerability and weakness and deceits and betrayals and bitterness and the darkness and tragedy of life throws you into chaos? What do you do when the religious systems you've erected to hide who you really are come crashing down? What do you do when the alcohol can't numb the pain anymore? What do you do when you don't know what you know, when you don't know who you are, when you don't know where you are? You go to the beginning. 
You watch as God begins shaping something out of nothing. You watch as God moves into the chaos, into the darkness and breathes life and forms land and air and night and day and beauty and goodness and the possibility of being in this world in a new way. You watch as God hovers over the waters of chaos which have immersed the world and you watch as he speaks with his words and life erupts fresh and vibrant and at one with him moving and living and connecting. What do we do? The masses cry out in Acts chapter 2. You repent. Not an apology for what you've done. It's a turning from who you thought you were. You immerse yourself in waters. You go down into the chaos, but now you go with him, with his name breathed over you, Jesus. You come up out of the waters, and what does he promise through his word? To fill you with his spirit, with a new language. Why do we baptize in the name of Jesus? Because we believe this word is inspired by God, central to living and aiming towards intimacy. And as much as possible, we want to trust what it says and how it says it. No other name given among men whereby you must be saved. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, except a man be born of water and spirit. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord in Acts chapter 19. They were baptized by John. And Paul says, that's great, but there's one who is greater. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why do we believe in the initial sign of, the, of being filled with the Spirit of speaking in tongues? Because it's consistent with the rest of Scripture from the Old to the new identity is transformed over and over when God speaks. The Bible foretells in the Old Testament, Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, book of Joel. And in Acts, it records this incredible experience in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, verse 33, in chapter 8, in chapter 10, and chapter 11, verse 15. We see believers being filled with the Spirit and speaking in another tongue. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Christ relays, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, verse 40, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. This is Peter speaking now in chapter 2. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The promise in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is that you should receive power. You shall be witnesses. We are at the uttermost parts of the earth right now. There is nowhere else to go. Where you are, wherever it is, whatever state, city, country, province you're in, 
It's the uttermost part of the earth. There's nowhere else to go. And it's time for us to be the people of His name. We can have an identity recreated in Christ, rooted in creation, connected in community, and crafted for a cause, committed to our King. I'm Philip Johnson. You're on the broken journey. And I pray you find a new beginning in Christ. Have blessed it.